this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Warlow. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years, and I've taken some of their best practices, their their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Next up, you're going to hear from Sebastian Johnston, who built a company called The Amaze App, which is a simple application I'll let him describe. They raised $800,000 of startup capital through an accelerator. Eight months later, they had grown to 4 million active users a month, and he sold the business to one of the largest e-commerce retailers in Europe. What I found really fascinating about this interview is Sebastian himself. He is, in a word, unflappable. And as you'll describe, he'll describe through the episode, all of the twists and turns the company went through and the negotiation itself went through, all the while stayed steady as she comes. And when I look at his resume, I'm going to read you some of the stuff off his profile because it's unbelievable. He is currently the founder of Vare. He's an advisory board uh, member at Bunting. He's a mentor at the Founder Institute. He's a mentor at XL Springer. He's the founder of Hey Honey Yoga Wear. Um, It goes on and on. Founding investor at Fedora, among others. Uh, A mentor and a coach. Just an incredible entrepreneur. And as you will hear firsthand in a moment, humble. And he credits a surprising activity for that humility. And I'll let him describe that. Here to tell you his entire story is Sebastian Johnston. Sebastian Johnston, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Pleasure. All the way in Hamburg, Germany. It's great to have you here. From We don't do a lot of these from uh, Europe, so it's great to have a European entrepreneur on to uh, tell us the story of Amaze. What does this company do, Amaze? Give me the backstory of what, what this company did. Uh, it used to be um, a mobile app for fashion commerce, so basically the possibility for consumers to buy um, fashion um, so-called look-based. That means uh, influencers were able to upload pictures um, and creators were able to upload pictures of their daily look and style and so forth to the app and also to create quite some virality around the app. And um, consumers were able to buy these looks um, and the different fashion pieces um, consisting of. Okay, so, so if I'm if I'm kind of into fashion, I could download yeah. the app from the app store or Google play yes. or whatever. Yeah. And then people I recognize from television, from music, from pop culture would exactly. be served up to me. Yeah. And I'd be like, I really like that guy's shirt. Yeah. And then I, could, it, I would have been, I would be able to follow this, this um, person um, or this influencer creator. I would be able to basically shop 
um, piece by piece or the entire look. Um, uh, it would be it would be convenient. Um, and actually, that was six years ago, seven years ago. So it was quite quite new. Yeah, today it's kind of common, but um, we were one of the first ones in Europe doing it. So that's kind really of cool. Uh, yeah, but, shows you how out out of out of fashion I am. I didn't even know it existed, and you're telling yeah. me it's like six. This is like six year old technology. I'm like, really? <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> okay, so what's the business model? Like, how did you make money? It was basically um, traffic arbitrage. So we were getting uh, sales commissions um, from the retailers selling while we were only doing arbitrage based business and basically mitigating the consumer or the, the purchase um the, the commission was i believe between eight to twelve percent based on basket size um, and per sale so yeah per commerce sale so it was free to download for the consumer yes and for the brand H&M or Gucci or whatever could also join the platform for free or was there a fee for yes. them to, to join? But they could join the platform for free and list their so-called catalog. Um, so basically product data feed. Um, but we had a cooperation also with large um, e-commerce fashion wholesalers, obviously representing multiple brands. So we got their feed and catalog as well. So we had quite some coverage from the very beginning um, with regards to brands and products. So I believe like 800,000 products have, have been listed from the very first days on simply because we got this um, catalog from one of the big fashion e-commerce companies. Um, and this was obviously in the back end. And in the front end, this was mapped with images. So there was a t-shirt and a jeans and a hat. Yeah. And then a creator or influencer uploaded an image, was able to tag on the image the product or the, the fashion piece, and this how enabling um, the consumer to shop it easily. That's called look-based shopping, meaning the curation is being done by an app or by an influencer. And we know this from these days um, from Instagram. Today they have this. Um, uh, basically tags or product tags on images. But uh, yeah, five to seven years ago, that was not the case yet. At least not in Europe. I don't know in the US, but um, usually with like feature rollouts of, for example, Instagram, we are one to two years behind. <laughs> so you get, the, you get the new features usually earlier. And that, that's why there was this big um, window of opportunity for this app. So had you seen this working in the U.S.? No. I, yeah, theoretically, maybe back then, yes, but we haven't rolled out yet. We were only in Europe. No, I'm sorry. Uh, had you seen this? Uh, no, uh, no, 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 no. It was this not, was um, so to say, not a clone or copycat. Um, no, it was basically our idea to realize this. How did you get the influencer to play ball or to participate. So I get, I get why the brand participates. You, they pay you a commission and they sell their purses and shirts and stuff like that. I yeah. get why the consumer would participate, but why does Brad Pitt care about uploading his look to uh, Yeah, we amaze? didn't necessarily co collaborate with Brad Pitt. We collaborated with um, 
mainly female um, influencers having a fashion affine audience and also bringing this audience to the app that was um, yeah, our target uh, influencer the basically incentivation was a kickback on commissions or off commissions um, approximately 20 percent of the commissions we generated um, yeah. and so to say it was a revenue model or income model for creators back then um, and the the logic was basically we would onboard creators with their images they they would tag on the images the different products they would also um, promote the app uh, in other channels this how creating traffic on the app or um, unique users on the app and basically having this this back loop or this end-to-end um, yeah, -end loop of e-commerce sales commissions being generated um, and that was in the early days because there was no hard, so to say, no competitor. Uh, okay, so let me see if I got the, the business model. So yeah. I'm a consumer, I buy a shirt for $100, let's yeah. just say. Yeah. You get a commission, let's say it's 10%. I know it ranged from eight to 12, but yeah. let's just say it's 10%. Yeah. So you get $10. Yes. And then the influencer gets $2. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this really works when you get a lot of people using the app, like to, yeah. to make this make sense for everybody, you got to have a lot of users. It sounds like. Exactly. Why um, did we realize a lot of basically download uh, downloads and usage? First off, because it was free. And second, it was convenient. Um, I mean, the purchasing process, but it was also kind of convenient with regards to curation meaning lots of consumers actually make their mind how they dress um, on a daily basis or how they would like to dress or how they um, do dress and they use obviously inspiration from people they admire with regards to their style and this was basically represented in the app the picture shoppable um, there was so to say only one comparable model um but it was not mobile it was desktop um called as seen on screen um it's actually i think formerly an, a us american or uh, british company they did something similar meaning curating styles people were um uh, were wearing in famous <laughs> tv shows so uh, sex in the city and whatever friends and so forth sure. um, and they will have these images on their website and on their platform but it was not mobile um but this was so, so to say the only inspiration we had got it so yeah. this sounds like this sounds like a massive idea like when i yeah. think of business ideas i think of like well, starting a lawn mowing company or, uh, you know, being a guitar teacher, like those mm -hmm. are simple ideas that you kind of start up and, you know, without mm -hmm. a lot of capital. When I hear about an idea where you're like the world's biggest brands and these influencers and you've got to get millions of users, like, this just seems yeah. kind of overwhelming to, to me. Like, yeah. how did you 
like I'm struggling to see how you got, I guess my, my question is like, how do you get the chicken or egg problem mm. solved? Like, how did you quickly grow? Like, mm. did you raise a bunch of capital or what? Like, how did you kind of get to some form um, of scale? Yeah, luckily there was one movement. Um, the, the fashion e-commerce market, so to say, showed signs of going mobile. Today, the mobile share is bigger than the desktop or the browser-based um, sales share. Back then, we, we had the hypothesis and, and some proof points that the market would go mobile. And that, that was one growth driver, so to say. The second growth driver, driver was the, the creators bringing reach and audience to the app. Um, they did so. So basically, they posted on Instagram or in other channels, hey guys, I'm supporting this app for fashion um, shopping and so forth. Find my styles there. So we got a nice share of free traffic, so to say. And this was another growth driver. The, the third growth, growth driver was obviously performance marketing. So we tried to basically create installs or downloads and installs and monthly active users via um, acquisition marketing. Um, yeah. What does that mean, acquisition? Acquisition mean marketing mainly means performance marketing campaigns, Facebook, Instagram. So paid uh, advertising. Paid advertising Got to it. acquire uh, users. Still sounds really expensive. Like how, did, like, how, like, how did you finance this growth? Did you raise a bunch of money or what was the... Uh, we raised... In total, 800k um, from an uh, accelerator, a US American um, uh, accelerator, 500 startups, and from business angels. How much of the company did you have to give away to finance that? Uh, I would uh, in total 40%. 40% yeah. went to the accelerator. Yeah. These were the days when the valuations were not crazy high. Huh? That's so um, this was uh, for you, for German uh, context uh, or relations. It was a valuation pre or seed of uh, I think the first one two million euros. That was okayish. Yeah, it was not crazy high, but it was not also it was also not crazy low, <laughs> and um, so. And we were all first-time founders, um, so to say, it was a good deal. Who's the founding group? How many of, of you were there? Um, we've been three, four founders. Four founders. Okay. Yeah. So you're the four founders. There was also the like an, an agency, um, uh, like a development agency specialized on app development, also involved, um, also in the cap table, so shareholder. Um, they were not really founders, but yeah, a founding party as well, or founding ag agency as well, because we actually wanted it to be like that. We couldn't pay them and we did not want to pay them. We wanted to be, we wanted to incentivize them entrepreneurial. So that's why we paid with shares and basically uh, they have been in the, in the cap table. Got it. So you a handful of founders who had the idea, you went through the accelerator, you got some yeah. cash, and then you convinced your web development shop to take shares as opposed to 
cash. Exactly. Exactly. That's helpful for sure. So it was kind of um, sweat equity or shares for resources and development, um, which was back then quite common, so to say. Um, The question was more, would the developer like this uh, incentivation? Um, To my feeling till today, not that many developers really um, enjoy the fact of being entrepreneurial incentivized. Um, They're kind of, I believe, more risk resistant than um, um, business founders. That might be a stereotype, but um, I believe back then it was the case that it was hard to find a CTO and tech people being share incentivized, so equity incentivized and not being salary incentivized. So hmm. um, there was, it was uh, in, uh, in retrospective was the right decision, but it was not an easy one to solve. Yeah, because every every entrepreneur with an idea probably comes to them with the same pitch. Hey, do the development work for free. We'll cut you in for some shares. And we're like, exactly, yeah, that one exactly. <laughs> how did so? How did you make the, the like? How did you convince them that you were legit? Um, there was uh, some uh, friendship before we knew each other uh, because of other projects we did together, um, and we yeah we worked together beforehand, but on other projects. And then there was the business case, mm, yeah, business model it took some convincing, but um, yeah, at the end of it, we were successful. Fantastic. And how big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? Like, in, like what was the size at the time of the um, acquisition? Yeah, we had, I think, like... Mm, 4 million monthly active users and up to um, yeah, in a good day, like one to 2 million um, daily uh, visits um, of the users. Um, we were also basically measuring, obviously, activity of users on the app. How many looks did they check out? Um, how many purchases or clickouts were they doing? Um, and what was obviously the transaction volume. And then we yeah, got to a certain point, we noticed that actually at the same moment that we are quite successful, but on the other hand, also quite dependent on the few big e-commerce retailers that were giving us their product data feed. Mm-hmm. We had no own product data. We were only an arbitrage uh, business model and basically a traffic mitigator. And this was, um, yeah, how to say, black and white situation because we were dependent. Also, the exit environment kind of uh, showed that, yeah, we would need to sell or we would even be forced to sell to one of the parties giving us their product data feed because we were dependent on them. And also they had the most interest in our app and technology 
given the fact that the consumer would like to do mobile shopping. And um, yeah, this was actually then the window of opportunity with the good news and the bad news at the same time. And also based on this, we started the exit negotiations, um, basically looking into each other's eyes and saying, yeah, we have an app being dependent on your product data feed, but the app is quite interesting with regards to reach, consumers, user usage, and basically USP. You don't have it. And based on these um, basically arguments, we negotiated um, the exit process. Okay. So let me dig into a little bit more there. So you mentioned the data feed was coming from a few e-commerce retailers. Again, I'm, yes. I'm ignorant to this. So I'm assuming when you say feed, this is not somebody typing in this guy's shirt color and like typing it all manually and taking a picture of the shirt. It's all automatically fed through the Exactly. Through it's computers. like a database. Yeah. Database. Okay. So the database includes both a visual image of the shirts, as an example, exactly. as well as the description, price point, and question exactly. of excuse. Got it. So, yeah. so it would be untenable to do this manually, right? Like you'd have tens of hundreds of thousands of SKUs. You said 800. Exactly. Yeah. So the, there's no way you could do it through people. You had to have these, these feeds. And so these big e-commerce retailers, how many of these e-commerce retailers were feeding you data? Um, a handful, five. Five. Okay. So, yeah. and, and, and those five, the vast majority of your was it 100% of your inventory, uh, inventory, if you will? Yeah, yeah, yes, those, yes. Yeah. yeah. Got it. And of the five, was it roughly equal 20, 20, 20, like 20% each or was one dominant? Yeah, there was one um, um, big shot uh, having the majority. Um, like or 60, 70%, like more than exactly. half? Exactly. Um, okay. Also, this meant we... Are or we were dependent on them. Um, also, they were the most successful ones, uh, basically providing the consumer the highest convenience, uh, return uh, time, and yeah, and so forth. Um, what was the name of the the one that had the majority of the Zalando? Zalando. Okay, so this yeah. is the the ultimate acquirer. Yeah, got it. Zalando is that with a C like or an S? Yeah, with a with a Z. Oh, with a Z, Zalando. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It's Again, a it's can... a ten billion uh, revenues uh, fashion e-commerce player. <laughs> My fashion uh, sense is starting to reveal itself all the way through this interview. <laughs> I put on a shirt for you for the YouTube interview. I thought you'd be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same for me. Zalando. <laughs> uh, okay, so there. Yeah. One of the big five, and not only one of the big five, they are the dominant of the big five. More than half of your stuff yeah. is coming. The data feed is coming from them. Yeah. Like, would it be, when you say more than half, are we talking like 80%, 90%? Like, how much more than half would, would it be, have been coming from Solando? I would say 70%. 70%, okay. Yeah. The thing was also, I mean, if you want to have a really good, um, fashion purchase experience for the consumer, you want to have a holistic, complete product catalog. Otherwise, consumer would say, oh, let me check out 
the here and there as well if if I find something better. Um, same for this look-based shopping logic. Influencers were literally able to upload any nice image of a nice daily look they would have, and they would be able to find these products mm -hmm. they were wearing in the app and would be able to tag them, these, the, these images. Mm. And this would have only been possible with a complete product data feed. So it was kind of a vicious circle we were in and um, meant for us, okay, we are dependent on product data feed. Um, obviously also on the fact that someone fulfills fashion orders physically, yeah, because we were only a mitigator, only in traffic arbitrage model, somebody else had to fulfill the order and they were doing best. And then it was kind of a logic exit scenario for both sides um, to basically join forces. And then that's why we sold the company to them. Got it. Just to go back to some of the metrics, you mentioned 4 million active users per month yeah, and one to 2 million daily visits per month. Yes. Got it. It was Sorry. quite active, yeah. One, one, point, one to two daily visits per day. Yeah, yeah. And then what about revenue? Like you mentioned you got commissions of sort of 10%, anywhere between eight and 12. What would that commission pool have amounted to in a, in a typical year? Um, per month, you mean? Or per year, doesn't matter. Yeah, per month. Per year, um, yeah, one digit million per year and per month uh, less, unfortunately. Um, so we were saying in the retrospective, this commission model ends up in being yeah, a little chicken shit uh, only. Yeah, because I mean, you have a basket size, it's exactly the calculation you were doing before. You have a basket size of 100 euros or dollars and a sales commission would only be 10% of this. So yeah, yeah, we're talking about a fraction, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, the model scaled quite nicely, but yeah, it wasn't really <laughs> that much at the end. So it was, we were not, we were too big to die, but too small to be really, really, really um, scaling and uh, really interesting for a different exit scenario. So that's why we took this um, yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, with Zalando. Yeah. What changed? Because I'm imagining going through the accelerator process, there was some PowerPoint slide deck at some point that had this like hockey stick, right? Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. What, yeah. uh, because no one would give you 800 grand if they didn't think this uh, had real huge potential, right? What, what changed? Um, yeah, we were able to hire, um, um, content creators, uh, I mean, content curators more like, um, doing this tagging process for the influencers that would be too lazy. So we sometimes supported and helped them and we were able to hire some more developers, um, performance marketeers. Yeah, and so forth. No, I, okay, so that's helpful. My question was more the original business idea that you went through the incubator or the accelerator yeah. with, 
you garnered, you, you've got an $800,000 investment, right? For 40%. Yes. Yeah. So my assumption would be that that accelerator thought this idea could be maybe generating hundreds of millions of dollars at some point in the future or tens of millions of dollars, right? True. So what changed, what, what did you find to be that the, the, the yeah, it was, what this, was surprising? It, it was this, um, this, this window of opportunity we saw and we had to use meaning the dependence on these large retailers we were having. And also the question, if we would have waited too long, um, yeah, probably they wouldn't be that much more interested into our um, app because they could have built something themselves or um, yeah, mm, the market could have changed. We, we saw this relatively close window of opportunity and i mean it, so to say it was also a quick flip for the accelerator i think we sold the company i mean eight months or ten months after the accelerator invested so it was oh, wow really, i know yeah, it really fast, fast. Yeah. okay okay yeah um and we obviously paid back with i think a small multiple i mean the accelerator of i think two or something yeah great Great. So let's get into the. So I think a lot of people listening to this will really identify with whether they know anything about fashion commerce and so forth. They will certainly identify with this uh, this kind of feeling of being somewhat dependent on a single uh, supplier. We refer to it as a Switzerland structure uh, mm -hmm. at Value Builder, where it's like a dependence on a single customer, employer, supplier. In your case, it was mm -hmm. a supplier. Uh, this this data feed was coming from Zalando, uh, yeah. and you felt that. So who was like, how did that, like, when did you come to the realization that the gig is up here? We're really dependent on Zalando and we should probably do some sort of M&A. Like we should probably mm. sell a company to them. Mm. Yeah, it was on the positive side, the fact that consumers wanted to shop mobile which was beneficial for us and um, basically um, a growing market. Second, look-based shopping, curation, curated content was also something hot, so to say. Mm -hmm. uh, also on our side, some assets and basically um, value. Um, on the other hand, there was this market concentration with regards to product data feeds and market share at the end of the day and the question who would be able to give us the most complete product data feed and that was only this one player at the end of the day and so what what did we have to sell as um, assets it was team it was some tech cu content curated content and some reads yeah and this and some which reach like reach, like yeah. uh, reach uh, in terms of usage and customers mm -hmm. and consumers and users and this was something we packaged and sold and did you go to all five of the companies that were providing you with data yeah good question yeah obviously we did but it uh, kind of um narrowed down to two interested parties and then 
the the second one also um, gave us at a certain point of time a negative feedback. They were saying they would do something themselves, something similar themselves. Mm -hmm. They actually did so, and it was yeah, perfectly fair. Um, and the later one or the acquirer basically was interested mainly in team, so acquihire and some tech. And yeah, the fact to basically be able to offer mobile commerce solutions. Got it. So you go to all five, you get two on the line, one of whom bows out and says, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to. So what was your feeling when you found out that that second company had chosen not to pursue an acquisition? What did that feel like? Yeah, it's obviously um, requiring a poker face. Yeah, let's say. Because um, the question is, if you only have one bidder, should you disclose that there is only one bidder? Um, or should you signalize or pretend that, that there is a, a huge red race? And um, yeah, at the end, it was a fair deal. It was not unfair for both sides. Um, and yeah, I would say mm, we had realized an exit, obviously, and the, and the acquiring party had realized speed, I would say. Speed by acquiring a, a fast team, um, speed by acquiring some product and tech, speed by acquiring the logic of offering the consumer a curated fashion sure. app. And um, what do you count in, into the calculation as an acquirer? I would say it is um, revenues, assets, and speed. Um, and that's probably what they did. Revenues was factor X, assets, I mean, all of them, so team, technology, and so forth is factor Y, and speed is factor Z. And then they do their combination and, and basically calculate or propose a purchasing price, which we accepted at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So just to be clear, the poker face analogy, which you used, which I thought was great, you did not tell Zalando that the other bidder had bowed out, had, had decided not no, to uh, proceed. No, no. For, for, for intents and purposes, Zalando could have thought there were 10 other bidders. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I would say that that's the, that's, that's the normal scenario that um, first of the bidding processes are double blind. So bidder A does not know the bits of bidder B and C, neither does it does he or she know the, the, the name of other bidders. So it's an intransparent process, always, I would say, to my knowledge. Yeah? Um, and I would say it's something perfectly fair, both parties, um, did or played, and um, there was negotiations, and then you meet. At a and did Solando know they represented such a large proportion of your data feed? Yes. Yeah. So they know that they knew they had a very strong poker hand. Exactly. Yeah. 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 
What did you think the company might be worth before you got any offers? Like, did you have a multiple of revenue or EBITDA that you thought was kind of a reasonable? Yeah, the, back then there was no, no real comparables. Um, there were lots of mobile startups, yes, but no big um, exit cases yet. Neither in Europe nor in the US, I would say. And also, if there would have been a multiple, it would have been always, how to say, there would have been a huge um, spectrum in multiples, uh, either on revenues or on, um, uh, on EBITDA. And obviously, also, if you take the, the big acquisitions in the US, take WhatsApp or Instagram, they were all pre-revenues when they were acquired by Facebook, for example. Um, and so, the, so to say, long story short, there were not no comparisons. We only did yeah, some internal assumptions with regards to revenue multiples and EBITDA multiples. Um, and more or less, we met them, yeah. So what what was the what was what were you hoping to get for the company in terms of multiples of revenue? Uh, yeah, two times revenues and mm-hmm. um, infinite EBITDA because the EBITDA was negative. <laughs> <laughs> I always yeah. love the infinite EBITDA. That's great. Okay, so two yeah. x revenue is sort of what you were hoping for. Yeah. Um, what was your reaction to the first offer from Zalando? Like when they gave you a term sheet. What what did you what 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 was your reaction? Positive because we had no other option. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. how. Cl- where where did they land on the? Uh, were they around the two x revenue? Yeah, yeah. It was actually a little more, and um, because they counted in quite nicely um, the acqui hire um, and basically the team uh, value. And um, also, yeah, some tech. Yeah. Did, did you it ever was get a sense? including an earnout. So uh, there was the, the not so attractive part. Uh, yeah. What proportion of the, the, the more than two times revenue was, was at risk in an earnout? Uh, I can't really say because I was not in the earnout. Um, only two founders were in the on out. The other two uh, were able to leave, and I can't really answer this question uh, uh, correctly. Okay, okay. Um, how did you get away with leaving, <laughs> and how did that play out with your other three founders? Um, yeah, it was a decision everyone uh, was able to make uh, quite independently. Um, they, yeah, I decided to go for another business model and do and found another company and, um, the two others, I think also they decided to go for the learning curve and the um, responsibility because the, they were, um, later than managing the entire mobile department of the acquirer, which was, um, yeah, which became very big, um, mainly because also the market became that big. Mobile commerce is, I mean, today it's bigger than desktop or browser-based yeah. um, 
um, commerce and fashion. Um, I think even for the category agnostic ones like Amazon, I think mobile the mobile share is bigger than the desktop share. Yeah. I guess, Sebastian, so, the, what, what I've heard a lot from all founders, and I'm trying to remember one off the top of my head when I can't, yeah. uh, you know, if there's two founding partners, one leaves, one stays, there's often yeah. some resentment from the one who stays because they're like, oh, yeah. you get to ride off into the sunset and start another business. And I'm left holding the bag, working for some giant corporation mm -hmm. and filling out my timesheet and dealing with like, yeah. you know, three day, three weeks of vacation a year. Well, not in Germany, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's a, there's resentment that gets formed. Yeah. Did that happen in, in your case? Um, no, I, I stayed close friends with one of them. Um, he did a, I think a great experience and learning curve and he founded another very successful company afterwards. So um, I think everything fine and no uh, resentiments. Um, um, <laughs> and I would say it's everyone made his own decision. And mm -hmm. also we were not uh, pushed or forced to force each other. Everyone could have, could, was able to make his own decision, as I said. And um, yeah, and two years later, they left, or one of them, them left um, and founded another company, as I said, very successful one. So I think all things good. Um, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Did you, how did it work? Did they want you to stay? Did Zalando want you to stay? Um, no. No. We had ba it was basically half and half between the founders, half um, were asked to stay, and half were asked to leave, and then we, yeah, discussed internally and split up, and yeah, all fine. Fantastic, and then you went on to start another company, yes, uh, which is uh, was successful and also was acquired, as I understand yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So it was a great learning experience. And also, also the other founders, um, two went for VC and um, did their own funds. Um, one went to found another company um, in a completely different space, logistics. <laughs> and um, yeah, I also went on to found another company and do VC. Yeah, Sebastian, when the due diligence part of the process with Zalando was going on, mm -hmm. And they would have clearly come to the realization that they had a tremendous amount of power over you, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Did they try to retrade or lower their value as they learned more about how dependent you were on them? Um, luckily not. The, all the, the, the business people involved wanted this deal. There was one hiccup so to say, that one of the lawyers, the corporate lawyers became sick um, and also severely sick, which stopped the transaction for, I would say, at least four weeks. That was, to be honest, a time when everyone became quite nervous, um, mainly on the selling side. Yeah, simply because the transaction was not completed yet. I mean, we were like at... I would say 80% of the due diligence and the transaction. And then the corporate lawyer and also the head, he, he was also the, um, the head of corporate um, 
law and acquisition head of legal in total and he became quite sick this stopped the deal for four weeks what was that like for you personally yeah it was um we were all quite nervous You guys are, I mean, relatively young, it seems like. Did, did yeah. you know that, I mean, this is your, your, as you say, you were all first-time founders. You've all gone yes. on to start other businesses yeah. since, but at the time, first time. How did that play into your reaction to the four-week delay caused by the corporate attorney or the lawyer? Mm -hmm. Like. Do you know what I'm asking? Like being young and sort of naive mm. to the process, I'm assuming, did that impact how you reacted to that that pause? Yeah, I mean, you need to manage um, uncertainty as a founder and also in a transaction. Um, to be honest, we had no real backup scenario. Um, so we had to manage high uncertainty and the likelihood of success of the strange action for four weeks was um, uncertain. Um, so we kind of had to wait. Um, also, this information that there um, is, was this uh, sick leave um, yeah, um, leaked, I would say, after two weeks, not earlier. Um, this kind of uh, calmed down calmed us down a bit again but obviously yeah we were dependent on the presence and also the goodwill of the acquiring party given giving or given this delay factor being the sickness of the um, head of legal yeah so it made us to, yeah long story short nervous we were also about to run out of cash um yeah all the shareholders were kind of kind of um yeah nervous and we had to wait a bit i'd be curious to know if you were able to continue that facade that poker face we described mm -hmm. that you had early mm -hmm. here's what i've seen when you know you go through all of the the negotiation before mm -hmm. the letter of intent is signed i think it's maybe a little easier to have a poker face at that stage because mm -hmm. you're still haven't you know accepted an offer then yeah. you accept an offer and there's mm -hmm. due diligence and it's painstaking and difficult and they're starting to find out some of you know, where the bodies are buried, where the, you know, the skeletons in the closet, as they mm -hmm. say, where the problems are. I think a lot of founders struggle to remain poker faced at mm -hmm. that stage and undermine their mm -hmm. negotiation leverage mm -hmm. because they start to panic. Mm -hmm. um, what did you do in that state where you're running out of cash, you're young guys, mm -hmm. you're worried, the guy gets sick, like, were you able to kind of keep the facade or did you start to show your panic? Mm, no, I think we were able to keep um, professional and keep the facade. Um, and luckily, there was no red flag in the due diligence. 
I mean, if an acquiring party wants to find a red flag, they will. It it will. It's always possible, and um, yeah, basically, you are always able to kill a deal. I believe on uh, no matter which transaction, um, and this was the the the. I, I think the main driver for uncertainty was the sick leave, literally, of this um, leading um, stakeholder on the other side. Um, responsible basically for the entire transaction, C-level approval was already there, yeah, and also goodwill and everything. And um, just how to say the executor was missing. Um, and yeah, obviously we felt lucky that we all ended up at the notary um, after some mm -hmm. weeks. Where does that come from from you personally, Sebastian? I get the sense you're unflappable. Like you're very like, where does that come from? Uh, um, it's I think um, um, it's all always rationale. Yeah, you know it. You never realize um, a successful exit or a company with too much emotions, um, neither positive or negative. You have to keep quite rational. I have I believe. Yeah, and and execution driven. Um, but Sebastian, I, I want to yeah. know for you personally, yeah, where that comes from. Like, I I get the fact yeah. that you have to stay rational. I get the fact that you execute, yeah. but you were able to do that while ninety nine percent of the people would have crumbled under the pressure. So, mm. where does that come from for you? Like, is that your upbringing? Like, what what what? Like, where does that that sort of sense of not staying on on point, not getting mm. emotional about the transaction. Um, yeah, back then I uh, did a lot of yoga and meditation, which helped. Really? <laughs> yeah, literally. And also, I would say that most of the co-founders remained um, profitable. Uh, profitable. I'm sorry, uh, professional and calm. Um, and yeah, also, so to say, um, humble. Yeah, we try to basically disclose everything, all cards on the table. This is this is now the due diligence. This is now all pants down, and um, we yeah tried to manage this transaction professionally. Um, and then, in the other side, um, moved with some breaks, unfortunately. Um, yeah, and what helps, I would say, is mindfulness, humbleness, and uh, yeah, exercise. Awesome. The, the trifecta of doing a deal. <laughs> what are you doing now? Where, where can people learn about what you're up to now? Send us to a website. Can we connect with you on LinkedIn? Like, Give us a sense of what you're up to now. Um, I'm now, since uh, approximately two years, um, founder and CEO of a consumer brands holding. We are operating a data and tech-driven platform for consumer brands and products. We are developing these brands and products from zero to hero, so literally end-to-end, -end, um, from data points and idea to global execution and distribution. 
Um, we're based in Hamburg. It's a very international team. Mm. We are active in 10 countries approximately, hmm. um, mainly in the space of beauty, wellness, and spa, fragrances, and scents. Um, so a company similar to Zalando. Um, no, we are literally owner of the brands, while um, Zalando, for example, is, is a wholesaler, more or less. Um, okay. And, a, and a, yes, a platform as well, like we are, but more in the sense of marketplace, while we are a platform for owning and operating consumer brands and products. Yeah. That's helpful. And what's the URL? It's vivere.io. Vivere uh, is Latin for living and life. Vivere.io, based awesome. in Hamburg. And we'll put that in the show notes at Built to Sell. Thank you so much. Sebastian, thank you for doing this. Likewise. Thank you so much, John. It was a huge pleasure. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.